This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Country Hour. My name is Megan Hughes. Thanks for your company. Coming up, with El Nino declared in areas around Australia already drought feeding, I'll take a look at how fodder supply is going and how you can support producers doing it tough. There's an absolute um, need um, right now that's emerging and so we, we're um, very much asking the wider community to, to be generous again and to put, put its trust in rural aid again with a donation so that we can go to work doing the things that we do um, to support our farming families. You may have also seen that avocados are selling for less than a dollar. So what does this mean for industry? Those prices um, are really at at the bottom in terms of uh, what what prices are needed for um, growers to have sustainable returns. So I'd say, you know, those those prices can't can't continue. Um, Simply, you know, growers will go out of business at, at those prices. And also today, volunteers have unearthed a 95-million-year-old skeleton at a dig at Belmont Station outside of Winton in western Queensland. Just about every dis- discovery we make out here is new um, because it's a, it's a vast country. It's, it's uh, really hard to actually uh, dig and find fossils, but that means that when you do find something, generally it's going to be new. So that's the excitement. So today, coming up first with El Nino officially declared, we know that we'll be heading into a hotter and drier period, which means you need to make the most of any rain that falls. In Western Queensland, Troy and Amy Coon have been using rehydration techniques on their place, Nickerville Station near Quilpie, for a few years now. And this is all about counteracting erosion and also conserving soil moisture during dry times. They spoke with Madeline McCosker about the work, which has proven to be immensely beneficial, not only to their productivity, but also to their biodiversity. From the results, we've seen the biodiversity and how the country has reacted to the slow movement of the water and we've been able to produce a lot of native species back onto the property. So it's, it's worth the investment that you're putting into it. You know, it's obviously a big job to do, but the, the results you're seeing is well worth it. Yeah, it's definitely worth it and you get excited once you see the results, but it's not really that much effort. How has it changed your productivity and your profitability as a business, you know, to have this slow-moving water and and it's changing your landscapes? What kind of impact does that have in other aspects of your business? Well, our carrying capacity is lifted. Um, When you go from bare country to pastured country, you can see it. It's Yeah, the return is there. We're able to introduce um, small stock back into the operation and... um, yeah, everything is just fattening a lot quicker. And you said when you were talking that a lot of it is trial and error and seeing what works and sort of figuring it out in the early stages. So what sort of things did you try in those early days that maybe since then you've improved on a little bit? The size of your interventions, um, the depth of your sumps, so how much water you're managing to retain, to rehydrate it. Um, you get a big rain event, it comes down and makes a mess and makes you open your eyes up and go back and fix it. Um, yeah, it's just a learning curve as you're going. Until they grass up, you're not going to have any sort of security. It's just is what it is. 
And you've got your own machinery, which makes a big difference to you, being able to sort of just go out and, and do the work when you need to. How important do you think that is to the success that you've had? Oh, you can always find a contractor. Um, the biggest thing is getting the confidence with the marking out. It's only a laser level and just having your head around water systems and where's safe and what's not really. Um, it's not a big deal to get a contractor in. You always find one. You did stress earlier the importance of getting a laser level. If you do get one thing, that should be the thing you buy. Yeah, do not wing it. Your eye's <laughs> not that good. You said earlier as well that bigger isn't always better when you're, you're putting in the spreader banks and, and the ponds and all the different things that you're doing. Why is, why is that that maybe the smaller ones do work better in some instances? Uh, a lot of it's volume. If you can't control the head of a watercourse coming into you, then you're going to be dealing with high volume straight up. Whereas if you can start right at the top, you only need a little infrastructure all the way down it. Uh, I thought bigger was better, but it's not in the long run. Little steps and you will see results. And, and Amy, you said as well that you know, with the, the increased amount of water that you have slowly moving through the place, it's, it's you know, brought a lot back to the property as well. What have you noticed in, in terms of you know, native species or, or animals that have returned to the property? Seen a huge increase in the bird life. Um, especially things you'll be riding along and you'll see a lot of ground quails that never used to be there because there's a lot of grass now for them to nest in um, and a lot of reptiles um, coming back um, also a lot of insects um, native insects native bees and things like that have returned and I guess the thing that I think really shocks people when they're looking at the visuals is just the stark difference between the land where you've done this work and and maybe where you haven't started yet you know, seeing that those results on your own property, how how does that feel, I guess, to, to see the work that you're doing and, and the success that you're having and the changes that it's led to? Oh, it's encouraging. Like, yeah, it makes you want to go and do more. When you see it work, you go from nothing to grass, you get keen. That's Troy and Amy Coon from Nickerville Station near Quilpie speaking with Marlon McCosker. Now, someone else who has been doing work to increase their water efficiency is Central Queensland farmer Matt McLeod. He's been preparing for another dry period. And to do that, he's been working with the University of Queensland, looking into multi-species hay at his property, Nugavidgen, as he explains. It was 20 acres of multi-species and 20 acres of mono-species, which was just loosened. The trial was there was it was it was broken down into 96 plots which got four soil samples each plot got yield measurements every cut we done the project went for 18 months the key findings in the trial was the multi-species um, gave us an uplift the uplift of 17 percent in carbon it had better water infiltration it held the moisture for a lot longer. It was high profitable, high profitability. All in all, it, it was just a, a lot nicer paddock to be in compared to the mono. The trial was for 18 months and it ended in October last year, but you are continuing this further? Correct. Justine and I, which is my wife, we committed to five years. Um, so we're continuing the exact same thing, except we've turned the mono into um, to the multi-species as well, so... With the multi-species, talk me about the different plants you have in this particular paddock. We've got um, a cereal, so this year we've got oats, the lucerne, fine-cut rhodesgrass, a chicory, a plantain, a field pea or bean, depending on season, vetch, ryegrass, 
and a little bit of desmanthus root. So this will be turned into hay, that's correct? It will be correct. Our, our vision is to get out of hay and, and put our own cattle through here, strip grazing and cell grazing, And but there's just that much demand for the multi-species at the moment. So we've, um, we're going to keep going with this for, for a couple of years. And Where's this demand coming from for multi-species hay? So a lot of people now, um, as far as Townsville in the racehorse industry, are getting it because of this. It's, it's basically a balanced diet. And a lot of bull breeders and people that have sick animals or young animals that need that uplift, they, they're loving the multi-species. Talking about this, you're saying a 17% increase in your soil carbon. This isn't a carbon farming project, is it? No. So what do you get out of it, if not carbon credits? For us, it's about improving the soil. Um, Our soils are very depleted and still depleting. Um, So we want to leave a better footprint and um, grow happy, healthy plants. And talk me through the drought resilience aspect to it. How, how does this help you get through a, a dry couple of years? It was noticeably different in the multi species just because of the root structures and it helped with the calcium-magnesium ratio in our heavy clay soils here. So it built that foundation for, you know, the undersoil microbes and things to to do their thing and water infiltration absor- and absorption was was a lot higher also so um, you know if we get five mil we use it if we get 60 mil in a very short time we use it too because it, it goes into the soil not off the soil you know what's it been like the last couple of years where you are in central queensland have you had a bit of rain it has been good but the next door neighbour just over there, like he's not too far away and there'll be times where he gets 30 mil more than us and vice versa. So that's that's the thing, like we, we don't know when the next drought is, we don't know when our next drop of rain is, so we've we've got to be prepared and use use every bit of it when we get it. And yeah, as you were saying, you've obviously done this the last couple of years and it's been in um, sort of like a wetter couple of years, but there's a lot of talk about an El Nino. How are you feeling going into that? Yeah, look, I think it's very, very important that we ourselves here are prepared for it and we leave that ground cover there um, so we don't let our carbon disappear and humus and all that. We've got to... We gotta, hold what we have and and keeping that ground cover there and trying to minimize cost too is is another big thing like we're watering with underground water so it's got a lot of salinity in it and it's good but it's not good to be pouring that that underground water on your on your land too that was central queensland farmer matt mcleod speaking there it is 16 minutes past 12. you're listening to the queensland country hour on abc radio queensland There are places around Australia already in drought and farmers there are drought feeding. Rural aid is seeing an uptick in calls for assistance. So they've had a 250% increase in calls for emergency drinking water deliveries. And they're also seeing more demand for their buy a bale program as well. CEO John Walters says they're calling for donations to help them deliver these services. The, the latest declaration, I guess, has is, is probably just reaffirmed what um, people have been expecting is going to happen and have probably been really living through already up until this point. It, it's certainly been hot than we, we'd normally expect for, for this time of the year. And we, 
at Rural Aid, we're, we're really seeing over the, the, the winter months a, a real increase in the demand for assistance. And we, we're really bracing for that to continue and to, to increase as we go into summer, uh, where it's only going to get hotter and drier. And is that assistance around drought and drought feeding? Uh, it, it very much is. Um, right now, there's been a, a real surge in demand for emergency deliveries of drinking water, and that's in, increased almost 250% in the last couple of months. So too, um, requests for fodder, but also um, our team of, of counsellors stand ready to, to help and, and provide emotional and wellbeing support to to farming families. They're, they're based in rural communities. They understand those issues and challenges. And really importantly, they can see uh, producers on their properties and take the service to them rather than um, necessarily expecting it to be a conversation that, that takes place in an office in an in a urban or, or city environment. And in terms of your buyer bail campaign, have you had a lot of donations already sort of come in this year? Oh, look, buyer bail is, is, is what um, so many people know Rural Aid for, and it's been an incredibly um, successful way of connecting the city to the country by default. It's, it's through buyer bail that, that people who, who lived in rural, uh, in regional and, and often urban environments were able to make a contribution to an organisation like Rural Aid so that we could then get help and support to farming families. And it, it continues to, to this day, and we're, we're really probably going to be, and, and not probably, but there, there's an absolute um, need um, right now that's emerging. And so we, we're um, very much asking the wider community to, to be generous again and to put, your, put its trust in rural aid again with a donation so that we can go to work doing the things that we do um, to support our farming families. And have you had many donations come in this year so far? Oh, look, it's it's certainly very welcome support. And what we've seen as we've been telling some of those stories about the situation that producers have in front of them and, and very much focused on just that need for drinking water at the moment. Like, as I mentioned, we've seen a, a 250% increase in the request for emergency drinking water, along with um, water infrastructure and particularly water tanks. Um, there's a real focus on that and that certainly has resonated with the wider community that they've wanted to, to help address that problem but I, th I think the stories that are going to be told going forward are, are going to be those stories about how drought assuming um, drought comes with El Nino um, starts to unfold um, we're, we're seeing it already it's very very dry in a number of places parts of, of New South Wales in the the northern rivers on the north coast in the New England um, down through the Hunter and then way down south around Bega or, or already drought declared and conditions are worsening in those areas. It's always a challenge to source fodder and particularly in a year like the, the one we're experiencing right now, the, the floods from earlier in the year and late last year has certainly impacted the, the availability of fodder. So that's that's going to be a challenge that will, will not only be a rural aid challenge, but it'll be one that producers wherever they are that are seeking fodder that are going to have to, to manage. So we're, we're really aware of that. We, we, we certainly are conscious that the fodder that we, we deliver to people is supported with a vendor declaration um, so we can 
be confident around the quality of that fodder that we, we bring onto farms. We want to make sure that it doesn't come with any headaches and any pests and, and noxious weeds. So, um, again, we're very conscious about that. But the, the challenge will be sourcing fodder at the right price. That was Rural Aid CEO John Walters there. Now, Rural Aid, obviously, as they're saying, that they might have difficulty sourcing fodder this year. And people across Queensland and some other states are already drought feeding. So what is this all going to mean for the fodder supply come summer? Australian Fodder Industry Association Director Frank McRae says supply is already being squeezed. Western Australia is probably uh, having a, a reasonably good year. Coming across South Australia and Victoria, uh, the reports we're getting that seasonal conditions are still okay uh, through there. And then as we move into probably the Gippsland, sort of that sort of south southeast of Victoria, heading up the coastal regions and into New South Wales and Queensland, that's a very different scenario with the dry weather and, you know, the confirmation of the El Nino, so things are looking pretty dire for a, for a lot of the eastern New South Wales and Queensland. What does that mean coming into an El Nino? Well, I guess it's going to affect fodder supplies. 2000 and probably 21 and 22 weren't great for hay production, so they were more silage type years. So there's probably a shortage of fodder. Uh, at the moment and our seasonal conditions aren't conducive to this being a good fodder year, uh, especially in the, the eastern parts of the seaboard, uh, New South Wales and Queensland. So is there uh, already a shortage coming into summer? Yeah, I'm at the handy machinery field days and we've had inquiries yesterday from, from you know producers down the south coast, Bega and those areas looking for fodder supplies. Their current supplies have run out and they're looking to source fodder. Uh, the new season fodder season is not looking good. The, the, you know, we're failing. Uh, crops are failing. Pastures are failing. And we're sort of going from, from day to day, looking at what scenarios we've got. There'll be some cereal fodder cut. Uh, some of the crops frosted. You know, some of the better crops got frosted, so they'll be cut for hay. But, you know, there's a lot of crops in the sort of lower rainfall areas that won't have enough bulk to make hay, even if they do fail. So they'll be grazed down. So it, it's probably not a brilliant outlook for fodder production at the moment, especially in New South Wales and Queensland. Of the areas that have been able to produce hay, what's the yeah. quality been like? Uh, quality is going to be okay this season, you know, so Generally, it's looking okay. High-protein hay is loosened and fetch with the dry weather. That will we'll make good quality hay out of that. But, you know, generally hay made in a, a dry season or a, a low rainfall year generally has um, higher water-soluble carbohydrates, so the feed quality is quite good. There are some areas that are already drought feeding, what about for other areas where there is green feed available? How is it looking in those parts? Yeah, they're looking okay, but everyone's sort of holding on the stock at the moment, which is, you know, we've got uh, low low beef prices, low lamb prices, low sheep prices. So, you know, there's big numbers of those stock going into markets. Uh, the prices are, have really sort of declined in, in recent weeks as the yardings increase. So, producers are trying to hold on the stock to finish as well so that's that's going to be grazed rather than cut for hay or silage so 
that's going to exacerbate the you know the fodder supply. And in terms of prices for hay and silage, yeah, generally they're increasing uh, for good quality loose and hay. There's always a premium market for that, and the protein hay like vetch. Uh, for, for the dairy industry, uh, the chaff mills take a lot of the loosened hay, so the the prices have increased significantly. You know that's and then the, the high transport costs are going to add to to cost of the, the end users as well. So everyone sort of on knife edge at the moment. Uh, you know the livestock producers, fodder contractors, and that. You know most of the fodder contractors are looking at, and even our harvesting contractors are sort of looking at. at where they normally travel to different areas and follow the harvest through, they're starting to pull out of areas. The crops aren't going to be there to harvest. So, you know, if you take the crops out the, and they're not good enough to cut for hay and silage, so it's just going to mean that there's probably going to be a shortage of supply and, you know, the areas where we have got production then to transport to the other areas is going to be expensive. That's Australian Fodder Industry Association Director Frank McRae. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Australia produces way more grain than can possibly be consumed in this country. So a lot of it is exported. But a new report has come out and it's showing that Australian grain is actually struggling to compete on these international markets. And it all comes down to inefficiencies in the supply chain. Zach Whale is the General Manager of Policy and Advocacy with Grain Growers, and they were actually the ones who commissioned this report. He says every inefficiency in the supply chain costs the growers money. The grower pays for transport, so so every dollar spent in transport ultimately comes off what the grower receives. And we've got international players that that often have a lower cost base with grain production. And so when we're um, exporting to international markets, if they can do it cheaply, that really impacts us. Um, As we know, Australia is an expensive country to operate and our labour costs are high, our input costs are high, and sometimes our transport costs are, are really high by international standards as well. So grain growers are really keen to get to the nub of that and work out what we can do to actually bring those costs down. Right, so let's take a look across the country and the key grain-growing regions in Australia. What are the main areas highlighted in this report for improvement? The biggest one, and it's such an issue, especially with some really wet harvests over the last couple of years, road funding. Maintenance budgets are underdone year on year, and there's some real systemic issues with the way our roads are funded. So we need cash injections into what we call first and last mile. So the the road funding that actually gets the road from the farm gate to those big arterial roads and then the the bit at the end, you know, where you're actually getting to destination. Local governments, you know, are responsible for around 87% of Australia's road network. So so we need to fix road funding. Um, That's absolutely critical. And it's not just money for new roads. It's ongoing money so that we can maintain the ones we've got. Another interesting component is actually on bridge infrastructure. Often bridges are the weakest point in a network. So we might be able to handle larger axle loads and and larger weights on other parts of the road. But if you've got a small bridge or an old bridge, then that means you can't actually get high productivity vehicles along that corridor. So we've got to target those bridges on key freight routes to start to lift the total payload that we can move. Road regulation, this is varied across states, but road regulation and permitting processes are often really inefficient and cumbersome and they take growers considerable time and considerable money. This one, you know, everyone will understand our rail network is incredibly convoluted and unaligned. A patchwork of of gauges and axle loads, which causes significant issues with efficiency. Again, with the grains industry being so export-focused, rail's often an ideal way to get grain to port. So we we need to, to... 
remember rail in the mix, and we've seen a trend away from rail year on year uh, across most parts of the country. Supply chain data, how do you optimise a transport network efficiently? You need data to underpin what is moving where, when, and we've got a lack of granular data, so we need to address that. And finally, port connectivity. Anything we export goes through a port, so we have to make sure that the port works, that road and rail access is streamlined, and also issues around you know, land planning and port congestion and the efficiency of ports uh, is really important as well. So, so they're the six key areas. Zach, how much variation is there in the grain supply chains that we have across the country? Huge. Um, east to west is, is completely in, completely varied. On, on the east coast, we've got a real duality of strong domestic demand, be it flour mills, be it feedlots and export markets, while on the west, we're much more export focused. And, and, and that makes a real difference. The more directions grain goes in, the harder it is to invest in physical infrastructure to drive efficiency. So there is a difference east to west, but we do export grains out of all our grain growing states. So we do need, you know, that port piece to be right. But say if you take northern New South Wales and Queensland, for instance, grain is not always destined for a port. So in some instances, road will always need to be a factor in how we get that grain from paddock to customer, whomever they may be, noting that we still need a viable export pathway which involves rail to efficiently get those grains to port. So what's the next step here, Zach? The next step is to build a really comprehensive strategy. We've got the empirical research. We've got the LEK report, uh, improving Australian supply chain efficiency. Now we're going to work with a range of stakeholders and build a comprehensive action plan. And we're going to advocate off the back of it and work with government and try to actually translate some of this into action. That was Zach Wow, General Manager of Policy and Advocacy with Grain Growers, speaking to Belinda Varischetti. Now, coming up after the weather, volunteers unearth a 95-million-year-old skeleton at a dig at Belmont Station outside of Winton in western Queensland. And also one southern Queensland farmer got quite a shock when a chopper crashed into his dam yesterday. I was about a kilometre away at my father's house, but I could see fair bit of it from there and yeah it was it below the dam line filling his bucket uh then there was a a loud noise and then the spray of the from the dam came up so i knew he was in trouble and then i think he rolled over and the rotors hit the water and made a massive noise and then all just went quiet so we knew he was in the dam so i just jumped in my buggy and come down to see if he was all right what was the price that you last paid for an avocado. There are reports of some selling for less than a dollar as a flood of supply is hitting the market. So what does this mean for growers and also the industry? John Tyus is the CEO of Avocados Australia. He says it's partly being driven by a 75% jump in production in the past three years. Yeah, look, at those prices um, are really at, at the bottom in terms of uh, what, what, what prices are needed for um, growers to have sustainable returns. So I'd say, you know, those, those prices can't, can't continue. Um, simply, you know, growers will go out of business at, at those prices. And how did that hap- How did this happen, this price, how the low prices? Oh, look, it's really driven by supply and demand largely. Um, we've had a lot of new plantings uh, that have gone in uh, over the last five to ten years, and a lot of those are now coming uh, into production now. So uh, we're expecting this coming financial year to be producing about 140,000 tonnes. Uh, back in 20, 
2021, our production was under 80,000. So, you know, we've seen a massive increase. Uh, that's likely to continue for the next few years, the, 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 uh, although the growth is going to slow. Um, we're expecting to reach about 170,000 tonnes by 2026, there thereabouts. Um, so this year, Western Australia's got a very good crop and also the tri-state region. Um, so they're, they're harvesting at the moment. Um, and, yeah, it's just a, just a lot of pressure on the market. And when you say tri-state region, we're talking about the Riverland, the Sunraysia area? Correct, yes. And um, we've also heard there's a lot of small avocados this year, which do, supermarkets don't particularly like, doesn't meet their specs. Is that the case? Yeah, there is a fair bit of small, smaller fruit around at the moment, uh, and that's often the case when you have a very heavy crop on on the trees, uh, and also coupled with you know environmental conditions, if there's sort of issues with with water. Um, but yeah, we need to be able to sell all all sizes, from very large to to small. So, what's happening to those small avocados? Well, one of the things we've been working on over the last few years, because we've been known, we've known that this increased production is is coming, we've been working really hard to open new export markets. Fortunately, some of the uh, some of the export markets uh, in in Asia uh, do prefer a smaller size fruit, so there is there is an opportunity there. Um, you know, the independents potentially can take um, more of that smaller fruit. Um, so, so you know what what we need to do is is find markets for for all sizes and and all grades. But definitely, we've seen a massive increase in the volumes that have been exported over the last few years. So, um, you know, at the moment, about 500 tonnes a week is is being exported. Um, so we're we're now exporting um, in a month what a few years ago we would uh, export in a whole year. So we've seen a massive increase in the volumes going offshore. But for the time being, those little avocados may not find a market. I mean, what about a marking campaign, itty-bitty avocados on your toast, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, I guess that's, a, that's an opportunity. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a small avocado. No, just, I prefer uh, them. <laughs> the, the retailers, uh, the major retailers don't, don't want to retail um, those, those smaller fruits. They do put them in the, um, often they'll be in a netted bag uh, as a sort of bulk purchase. Um, but yeah, it is challenging when you've got a lot of small fruit on the market. And avocados are not something you can store long term. So is there a bit of pain for avocados in the next, the next season uh, with this big supply? Yeah, there, there is. Uh, you know, there's been a, pain, a bit of pain for the last couple of years and we've, we've seen domestic consumption grow considerably. In fact, domestic consumption's been, uh, been increasing almost every year for the past 20 years. Um, so, so domestically, our consumption levels are very good and I think there's still a lot of opportunity to grow domestic consumption. Um, but the exports will be will be the key. Uh, we recently gained access to Thailand for uh, Western Australian growers. Um, Western Australia also has access to Japan, uh, and and soon we're hoping uh, the whole country will have access to India. So, but we still there's still a lot more we need to do to open more more export markets, and uh, technical market access is is our challenge, and we need government assistance to to do that. Um, and uh, you know that will make a big difference. As avocados as 
Australia Chief Executive John Tyers speaking to Emma Field there. On the Country Hour, it is 24 minutes to 1 and it's time to check the weather forecast. And it's a very good afternoon to Harry Clark from the Bureau of Meteorology. Good afternoon. Harry, what are these temperatures doing? It's so warm at the moment. Are they, are they going to cool down anytime soon? Yeah, look, it certainly is a warm Thursday across the state at the moment. Uh, Julie Creek is currently the highest with 38.1 degrees currently, um, but certainly many other locations to the northwest, about 37 degrees. Uh, Roma itself sitting on 36.3 and really broad heat for pretty much all districts uh, except for that far southwest where we have seen a cool change pass through already. Now, I guess uh, keeping an eye on that cool change over the next few days, we are going to see it move through southern districts uh, overnight tonight into tomorrow. Um, but for areas in central and northern parts of the state, we will see another very warm day tomorrow. Temperatures generally sort of uh, 8 degrees above average or so for September. And indeed, uh, the warmest you know, since this time last year, really. So certainly, um, uh, you know, still a lot more heat to come for central and northern parts of the state. But we will get the reprieve in the southern part uh, overnight tonight into tomorrow. And are these warmer temperatures bringing higher fire danger ratings? Yeah, look, certainly so. So particularly for the interior of the state, so virtually all districts through the interior, uh, seeing high fire danger ratings today, all other areas on moderate. Um, that's kind of a combination of the heat, uh, the dry air, but also a sort of a fresh uh, southerly wind in the far south of the state, and that wind is going to spread over coming days into much of the remainder of the state. So we will see those high fine dangers persist through the interior tomorrow and indeed right through the weekend as well. Probably the only place they will ease is sort of the Darling Downs and the Maranola and Warrego where they'll drop back to moderate or so by tomorrow. And with this cooler change that is going to come through eventually, hopefully, is there going to be much rain in it? Look, uh, basically the, the interior of the state remaining dry over the coming week. Uh, we will see some isolated showers uh, for coastal parts of South Rockhampton tomorrow with that change. It'll be very isolated though. Even a very slight chance of a thunderstorm inland of Bundaberg and Gladstone tomorrow. Uh, but once again, very, very much hit and miss. Otherwise, just some coastal showers in the usual spots um, from tomorrow onwards. Uh, really, you know, that spot between Cairns and Townsville. Uh, once again, around the Witch Sundays and also on the Sunshine Coast and sort of Gold Coast hinterland, um, but really falls mostly under sort of five millimetres or so, and uh, most people won't really notice much rain at all over the coming week. And there are a few uh, strong wind warnings around as well. What's happening with them? Yeah, look, so with that sort of, uh, you know, subtly change moving through, on the coastal waters, when it comes through tonight for the Moreton Bay and Gold Coast waters, uh, up to 30 knots, but really uh, extending further northwards uh, into tomorrow as that southeasterly change makes its way uh, up to the Mackay Coast, so strong wind warnings for the Mackay Coast south all the way down to the New South Wales border. And indeed, we can expect those strong winds to extend further north uh, into far northern Queensland by the weekend. So definitely uh, for the short term, um, pretty light and variable winds out on the waters. But as we go into tonight, you're really going to see them start to pick up initially in the south and then tomorrow for central parts of the state as well. And in Rockhampton, where I am, it was incredibly foggy on the drive to work this morning. And I saw there was a few other regions as well that had a bit of fog about. Is there much more in the coming days? Yeah, look, a really foggy start to the day for areas south of Proserpine in the east, um, pretty much all the way down to New South Wales once again, uh, patchy fog there. Uh, we will see the potential for fog again tomorrow morning, mainly along that coastal strip north of Bundaberg up to around Bowen or so. Uh, probably not as extensive as this morning, but certainly another chance tomorrow. That'll probably be the last of it for a few days. Uh, with that southeasterly becoming established, it'll just be too windy uh, for fog from Saturday onwards. So um, I guess, yeah, 
we'll have to keep an eye on that for tomorrow morning if you're on the road. So otherwise, yeah, that will be the last of it. And um, really, you know, expecting to see that, that wind probably become the, the dominant factor in the weather over the weekend. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Harry. Thanks very much. That was Harry Clark from the Bureau of Meteorology. And it is 20 minutes to one. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. In far north Queensland on the Cassowary Coast, there's a breadfruit grower and he says his trees have grown fruit in winter for the first time ever. If you're like me and didn't actually know what breadfruit was or and wanted to know what they look like, they're actually part of the jackfruit family. So they're large and kind of spiky looking and the fruit itself is quite a pale colour. Peter and Alison Solaris farm at East Faluga, just inland from Mission Beach. Mr Solaris says around 70% of his trees have breadfruit ripening on them and they're ready to start being picked in a few weeks. He says the warmer winter weather has caused this early growth. Normally we don't even get any flowers during the winter period because breadfruit are what's considered an ultra-tropical fruit. So they're very sensitive to cold. For them to flower and fruit and fill the fruit out during the winter period is pretty amazing. We've never seen it before. So this is the first time that it's happened for you? Yeah. I've heard of it happening in the Daintree and Mossman area because they're a fair way north of us. We're 18 degrees south. But it's the first time for us for any fruit at all, yeah, and they're quite nice-looking fruit. So, yeah, it's pretty unusual. But in saying that, our lychee flowering suffered dramatically because it's such a warm winter. We only grow lychees for our own use, not commercially, but, yeah, it's hard to get a feed when you haven't got many flowers. Yeah, we have heard different uh, different fruits have been responding differently to the, the weather this winter. As yeah. far as the breadfruit that has been growing, is it just a, just a, the odd fruit that's been flowering and, and growing early, or is it really most of the fruit on most of your trees? No, there's, we've got three varieties, and there's two varieties have got a reasonable amount of fruit. Now, certainly not massive amounts, but it's... When you're out of season, any fruit that's out of season is always desirable to have because the market wants it. We don't. The market gets pretty full in the main summer season. But yeah, um, the Samoan and the Tahitian varieties seem to have pretty good fruit set on most trees. Not not a, not fruit good fruit set, but some fruit on most trees, I suppose. So you're still getting pretty average yields then? No, certainly well below average, but. An interesting amount that we won't be able to eat ourselves. We really like breadfruit chips and we use them in different ways, even make flour out of it and we dry it. So uh, there's a lot more than us and our farm crew will use. So we'll have to send some away, yeah. And yeah, you mentioned it is off season for them to be growing. Is there going to be a market for that? And, and where is that going to leave you over summer? Yeah, good question. There will certainly be a market for the few we've got. I, I believe we'll still have a normal flowering in summer but it's always good to have little bits of out of season crop for the new exotic fruits so to speak because it just keeps your presence on the market it's not like having these bananas that are there every day of the year these things these are things that people look out for so and it still remains to be seen what sort of a flowering we get for the summer crop i suppose mm, and it's been the warmer winter weather that's caused this you reckon uh must have been there must have been an early period, maybe it was May, June-ish, that it was warm enough for the flowers and something stimulated the flowers. And it's, it's been a wet wet season, as you probably know as well. We had a lot of rain in Tully area for a long period of time and maybe that sort of stressed them a little bit in that in that aspect rather than the dryness. Because a lot of fruit trees are, are uh, reliant on stress levels from dry periods to make them flower. But we certainly haven't had that this year yet. 
Yeah, and look, talking about the fruit itself, do you expect uh, being so out of season that there'll be, you know, some changes to the flavour profile or the texture even? <laughs> Interesting you asked that one too, because Alison, my wife, makes the best breadfruit chips you'll ever have, and she made some with one I picked the other day, the one that's on Instagram and Facebook. I picked that one, and she made awesome breadfruit chips out of it. So the flavour profile, I can guarantee, is perfect. <laughs> so yeah, that it can it can vary those things. With um, one example is sapodillas. This year, our sapodillas haven't been very good flavour until just now. All the early ones were sort of watery and pretty tasteless, which we hadn't seen before. We're we believe we're we're heavily reliant on flavour. If if fruit doesn't taste good, we don't want to pack it and don't send it. So yeah, that's a good question. The flavour's got to be. It's important that it's there mm. and good. That's Fruit Forest Farms, Peter Solaris speaking to Bridget Herman there. Now, heading to southern Queensland now, where a farmer got quite a shock yesterday because a firefighting helicopter crashed into his dam. Queensland Fire and Emergency Services say the helicopter was actually undertaking water bombing activities when it ditched into the water shortly before 3 o'clock on a private property in Tyrone. The male pilot was able to escape safely, thankfully, and he swam to shore where he was met by farmer Evan Christensen. He described what he saw to Peter Gunders. It was just a firefighting helicopter, circled our property. I knew he was going to fill his basket out of the dam. Um, I was about a kilometre away at my father's house, but I could see a fair bit of it from there. And, yeah, it was it below the dam line, filling his bucket. Uh, then there was a, a loud noise, and then the spray of the, from the dam came up. So I knew he was in trouble, and then I think he rolled over, and the rotors hit the water and made a massive noise, and then all just went quiet. So we knew he was in the dam, so I just jumped in the buggy and come down to see if he was all right. Uh, thank goodness by then he'd got himself out. He'd swam to the dam bank and, um, yeah, I just checked that there was no one else in the chopper with him and he wanted to use the phone and make a phone call. Who did he call? I believe he called his boss first and then his wife after that. Right. Right. Um, what were the conditions? Was it windy or did he say anything? Like, did he? what did he say to you? Uh, well, it's pretty still conditions from memory, but um, I think he just said, talked about a few things, but I said there was a few phone calls coming in here or there, so we didn't get much time to talk at all. I, he wasn't freaked out. He was, he was just calm, and I think he knew how lucky he was to get out of it, so just happy to be alive. And so have they been using your dams? You know, th- this is the ongoing fires they've been fighting? Um, this, was a new, this is a new fire up on Cunningham's Gap near the highway, so this is... This is the first time a chopper's come in with a basket on this side this year. We had the same thing happen back in 2019. We had bushfires out here again, so we've seen it before. That dam? Yeah, an area probably covers about uh, seven acres in size and surface area. Uh, a lot of evaporation lately. It's probably down about half half its volume. Um, I was about to start irrigating some cow feed with it, but that'll have to wait a little bit longer now. Yeah, so what happens now? I believe insurance will be coming out tomorrow to assess what's going on and get the chopper out, so I'll see what information they give me about the fuel on the water and we'll go from there, I guess. Yeah. Oh, so it's still there at the moment? Yeah, the chopper's still in the bottom of the dam. Have you had any word from authorities for like what they want you to do or not do? or Basically, just don't use the water at this stage. That's farmer Evan Christensen, whose dam is out of action after a helicopter crashed into it yesterday afternoon. Very quick thinking as well. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Um, 
the RACQ Life Flight Rescue Chopper, also he air, they airlifted the man to Toowoomba Hospital where he was treated for minor injuries. This week on Landline, the rain-fed rice of northern New South Wales. Big groups like Mars Foods and Kellogg's are all out there trying to find low-emission rice to suit their, what they are trying to do. We have something that fits that mould, but we can't do anything about it. And the Mount Isa Rodeo. All of the best in Australia turns up. It's hard to win a cheque. That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. There's a research project underway at the University of Queensland at the moment and it's investigating insect-specific viruses and it's all about protecting Australia's $4 billion sugar industry. So what they're hoping with this research is to find an alternative way to control insects other than pesticides and the hope is it'll be discovered with the study and they're targeting two major pests, which is the cane grub and soldier fly. So Putting this into perspective in the industry, 20 to 40% of cane crop losses are due to pest and disease. But there is no alternative pest control other than using pesticide. Dr. Kaywon Edabare from UQ School of the Environment is an expert in insect molecular biology. And he says this research is aiming to create a biological solution that is environmentally safe. The end product of our research would be a biopesticide. So... We are trying to explore the viruses which present in the natural population of the cane grubs and pick up those ones which can cause a lot of mortality in the cane grub population. And then we purify those viruses and try to test their efficiency in the lab, in the you know cell culture, in the effect of these viruses should be checked on other insects. So we don't want to, for example, kill, you know, any bees, which the beneficial insects. So the virus which we're going to find in this, you know, cane grubs should be specific to the cane grubs. And then we can use them as a potential biopesticide in the future. So essentially, are you using the cane grubs and the sugarcane soldier flies against themselves? And exactly, yes, you are trying to increase our knowledge about the natural enemy in the, you know, in the wild type population. So we want to explore their virion. So what sort of viruses or pathogens living inside their body and what those viruses are doing, are they doing, you know, causing a lot of mortality or they're just living there without any that much impact. So with this increase, you know, screening of the national enemy, we can find some sort of alternative way. In our pilot study, we identified some viruses which can be potentially used as a biopesticide because they cause significant mortality in other insects, you know, but these viruses are specific to Kangra. So there's, you know, their genomic characterization is you know, specific to the kangaroo, we couldn't find the same thing in other insects. But similar viruses, we found they can cause mortality in other insects. There are also, you know, some safety issues related to things like insecticides and pesticides. So how come we haven't looked into biopesticides earlier? Is it only now that the technology is available? And it's a really good question. So we have done a lot of research previously. So 
using the biopesticide, using the buckle, you know, viruses as a potential biopesticide, you know, we are using them in industry, not the sugarcane, other agricultural sector for ages. But, and there are some sort of fungi, which the, those fungi can kill, you know, cane grubs, and we use them previously as a potential biopesticide. But generally, economically, they are not viable, and their commercial product is not available anymore. So that's why we try to find alternative virus-based biopesticide, which, you know, can, the virus can be released in the, you know, population, and the insect can transfer this viruses between them so we don't need to spray you know every single generation they can help us to distribute the virus among themselves so are these biopesticides the future of pest and disease control because they are safer and you know they're not polluting our waterways and our river systems yeah, exactly. Because uh, the biopesticide, the first thing in the introducing biopesticide is they must be specific to one particular pest, and they shouldn't have any negative impact on any other organisms. So we are in the earliest stage of finding that sort of biopesticide for cane grubs and soldier fry. But at the end, definitely, if we find something, they can be very sustainable and with the negative without any negative impact on other, you know, organism and environment, yeah. That is Dr. Kaywon Edabare from UQ's School of the Environment. Now, heading to Western Queensland now, where volunteers have unearthed a 95-million-year-old skeleton at a dig at Belmont Station outside of Winton in Western Queensland. Our reporter, Grace Nakamura, went along to find out more. Under the scorching Queensland sun, this group of strangers are digging for bones that are 95 million years old. This is Belmont Station in western Queensland, where sheep and cattle roam above the land and dinosaurs lie beneath. Twice a year, dino enthusiasts travel from around Australia to spend a week in the outback unearthing bits of history. Paleontologist Dr Matthew Hearn says they're at the forefront of new discoveries. Just about every dis- discovery we make out here is new um, because it's a, it's a vast country. It's, it's uh, really hard to actually uh, dig and find fossils, but that means that when you do find something, generally it's going to be new. So that's the excitement. That started off as a, as a meagre uh, tourist attraction and with all the discoveries that have been made, People are hearing more and more about it in Australia, but also overseas. So the whole uh, the whole tourism potential has built. So over the last 20 years, I've seen this sort of grow and grow. And um, it's been great for the outback communities. A lot of tourists are coming here and spending time in Western Queensland, and they come and visit the, uh, the various museums, including our museum. So it started off in a small way, actually on this station, Belmont, and um, uh, it's just grown every year. It's become uh, more exciting and more interesting, and people just actually keep coming back. We've got diggers that started off back in 2003, and they're still with us coming back almost every year. This is Ali Calvi's 14th dig. I love it. I just love it. I'm a dinosaur tragic. I love minerals. I love rocks. I mean, if you've been interested in dinosaurs your whole life, why wouldn't you take the opportunity to participate? 
In 2008, she was a tourist visiting the dig site, but she's since moved to Winton and volunteers five days a week at Australia's Age of Dinosaurs Museum. We've got all these specimens that are coming out of the ground. Some of them are not in jackets, they're in alfoil wrapping. But when we get them back to the lab, we then have to open them up and start removing the soil and stabilising the specimen and puzzling it all back together. David Elliott was a grazier when he discovered a fossilised femur on his station, only 100 metres from where the dig site is today. 20 years later, he's the leading ambassador for paleotourism in Queensland. He says the week-long digs have been particularly popular with retirees. I think they've got the time on their hands and they've still got plenty of, plenty of skills and plenty of, plenty of energy and they want to go out there and contribute to something. And I think that's amazing because that's what our museum can do to take the whole country forward with, with some paleontology and just natural history in general. Digging for dinosaurs is no walk in the Jurassic Park, as Ali well knows. It's not a solo enterprise. Um, this is a massive project that we all have to help each other with. Lifting buckets, plastering, it's not a single-handed job. You can't possibly do it on your own. It is a team activity. That report from Grace Nakamura there. And you really need to head online and check out this article on the ABC website. There's a fantastic video and some amazing photos up close of the dig and what they've found and the people working there. It's really worth checking out. Now, quickly to the ongoing issues of bank closures in regional parts of the country. The Australian Banking Association says banks have a duty to help those who still need face-to-face customer service. Bank bosses are being grilled at a Senate inquiry into the closure of regional branches across the country. It comes as 1,600 branches have shut their doors nationally in the past six years. That includes more than 300 in the last financial year alone. Banking Association CEO Anna Bly says customers can conduct more services online than ever before. When you're in the middle of a huge transformation like this, there is always a risk that some people will be left behind. And that's why banks have got a duty to make sure that they are doing everything they can to ensure that those people who still need some form of face-to-face banking can get it. We'll have more for you throughout the afternoon on that particular story. Now it's time to have a look at what's happening in the markets. And the there's been a good yarding at the weekly Warwick sheep sale. Here's Errol Luck with the details. Warwick age has been 1,655 total, with 1,225 lambs and 430 grown sheep. The overall yarding was good and contained well-finished trade and heavy lambs, along with heavy mutton. All the irregular buyers attended, however, one export processor did not operate, which resulted in heavy lambs and mutton selling $3 to $25 cheaper, with the exception of well-finished trade lambs, which were dollar dearer. Young lambs to restock are sold from 15 to 31. Young lambs to the wholesale meat trade sold to 72 and average 69. Lightweight merino lambs to restockers made $10 a head. Lambs in the 16 to 18 kilo range to restockers sold from 61 to 64. Light trade lambs made 79 to average 70. With ideal lambs to the wholesale meat trade, average 76 and sold to 99. And that's all we have time for on the Country Hour today. Thank you so much for your company. My name's Megan Hughes. News is up next. It's...